Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Women Scholars and Professionals podcast. My name is Anne Boyd, and I'll be your host. We at Women Scholars and Professionals are here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. With the 2024 American presidential election just around the corner, it's a good time to ask probing questions about scripture, power, and what it would take for our political theology to be shaped by God. Author and scholar Caitlin Shess joined us on the podcast to discuss her recent book, The Ballot and the Bible, How Scripture Has Been Used and Abused in American Politics and Where We Go From Here. In this book, Caitlin highlights examples of biblical interpretation throughout American history, examples that are distanced enough from our context today that they can help us see some common pitfalls that lead to poor political theology. These are such important ideas that require deep thinking and personal reflection, and Caitlin draws us into the conversation gently but firmly. In our discussion, we also talk about Caitlin's current experience as a grad student, and if you listen to the very end of the podcast, you'll hear an excerpt from our conversation where Caitlin shares a practice that has been strengthening her community bond, especially in her life as a single person. So let me tell you a little bit more about her. Caitlin Shess is a writer, speaker, and theologian. She is the author of The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor, and is a regular co-host on the Holy Post podcast with Sky Jatani and Phil Vischer. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Christianity Today, Christ in Pop Culture, Relevant, and Sojourners. Caitlin is currently a doctoral student in political theology at Duke Divinity School. She lives in Durham, North Carolina. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here with us. We had you on the podcast almost two years ago. It was in November of 2021 when you had a conversation with my colleague, Karen Guzman, about your book, The Liturgy mm -hmm. of Politics. And at that time, you had just started a doctoral program at Duke Divinity School. So mm -hmm. I would just love to catch up for a minute and hear a little bit about your past two years as a grad student. Yeah, so I've, I, it's good. I feel like I'm in a transition point right now because I've just finished all my coursework. And so this next year, I'll be studying for my exams and taking my exams and then writing my dissertation. And so um, in some ways, it's like I've been taking like classes in grad school for like seven years. <laughs> so it's been a really long time, but um, it's been really good. The last couple of years at Duke have been really good, partially because it's just helped give me such a diversity of theological education. I went to Dallas Theological Seminary and then I came to Duke for my doctorate. And so I'm so thankful that I've both had the experience of just like learning in a very different environment, but also 
Um, I've spent a lot of time with MDiv students at Duke and kind of just seeing culturally what's different and like the questions that are being asked are different, the kind of denominational backgrounds people are coming from are different. And so it's been a really great couple of years learning here and having honestly just like such supportive, good relationships here. I think if anything defines the first two years of my program at Duke, it is especially women scholars being just supportive and welcoming and caring. Um, my next book is coming out soon and I'm having a party tomorrow to celebrate it. And it's like most of the people coming are fellow students, um, especially women who just, I spent last summer writing this book with one of them in particular, she was finishing up her dissertation and we spent every day just like across from each other at a table in the library, working together and go to church together and are speaking at a retreat this fall together. And so just the kind of mixing of of academic support and worshiping together and community, all of that has just been um, more than I could have asked for. That is so, that's so great. It sounds like an ideal community yeah. experience. Yeah. You, have there been any challenges that you want to mention? Yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm excited now to like get into what I'm actually wanting to do, because like I said, I've been in school for so long <laughs> that it did start to, by the end, kind of get like, okay, I love class. I love being in class, but also I'm like itching to, to write the thing that I am most passionate about instead of kind of taking classes that are, you know, in things that are interesting, yeah. but not really at the heart of like what I want to do. And I realize one of the hard things, especially I think for someone who does a big master's program like I did and then does a doctorate, doesn't go straight from undergrad or do like a, a small MA program. It's like, I got into this because I want to teach. I want to be in a classroom. And yet I've spent like years and years now not doing any of that. Like, right. you know, so it's just, I, I sometimes feel the like exhaustion of like, oh, I have to remind myself what I got into this for and yeah. that there is an end to this yeah. and that eventually you will be in this next semester, I get to be in a classroom with students. So I'm really excited right. about that because it's, it's easy to just get like lose sight of the fact that like, that's what I got into this for. I love what I'm studying. I want to write really helpful things, but also I didn't do this just to, to learn more stuff for myself. I did it because I want to be, you know, either in a classroom or in some other setting, but like really giving resources to other people, teaching other people and learning from other people. And so that's, that can, I've gotten to the place where I've gone, yeah, okay, we've, we've had enough school. <laughs> like, yeah, let's, yeah. let's move on to like what this is really for. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's good. I'm glad you have some teaching opportunities coming up soon. Yeah. So this episode is coming out at the beginning of the school year. Do you have any tips for new grad students, maybe someone mm -hmm. who's starting out their program this fall? I think the best thing I can say is not a super practical tip, but I do think it's really helpful when I, especially when I first started at Duke, you know, I felt really like I was coming from a, from a program that didn't have the same kind of esteem as some of my other like colleagues in the program that were coming from like Yale or Princeton or Duke already, you know? And so I had this real inferiority complex and I, I'm sure they did too. Like, I'm sure everyone has reasons for coming into the classroom and just feeling you know, some imposter syndrome, some fear of saying the wrong thing. And it has been really helpful for me to just have a constant check on myself, especially in the classroom, to just ask myself, like, what are we doing here? Like, why am I here? Because so often, you know, the kind of secondary goals, which you do care about impressing the professor or impressing your colleagues or, or you know, making good connections, networking, but all of that should be like subsidiary to I'm trying to learn. I'm here to learn things. And having that constant reminder to myself of I'm here to learn has helped me ask better questions and be more curious because I actually have realized how much my insecurity 
and and pride that's all kind of wrapped up together my desire to be seen as really smart and to impress people and to you know appear well can really be a hindrance to my learning because i don't ask good questions because i'm supposed mm. to know everything or i i don't acknowledge the thing i haven't read because you're supposed to just nod and say oh yeah we all know that book everyone's right. read and then you miss an opportunity to hear about this thing to learn from someone and so that's unhelpful for me even just like multiple times during a during a seminar <laughs> to just be like wow. I'm here to learn. Remember, I am here to learn. Like that helps me not just feel differently, but have a different posture to just like, I'm, I'm here to receive. I'm here to ask questions and be curious. I'm not here to just perform. There's an element of that. You can't get rid of like the practical. Right. It does matter what the person teaching this class thinks of me, but that's secondary to I'm just here to learn. It sounds like you're um, it's like you're bringing forward a real element of vulnerability into mm. your learning that is, it sounds really beneficial. It's, I mean, that there are a lot of gifts from it, but it's also scary. Yeah. The just acknowledging, like, I do not know everything. Right. <laughs> like, I am not like the ideal, you know, cause we have this image in our head of like the person who has mastered everything and just kind of has at their command, you know, the date and the person and the quote, like at any moment and letting go of that to just, and I think especially for theological education, like what I do, it's, it it can feel hard to, to bring in how personal this is for us. Like it Mm -hmm. feels like that's outside the bounds of what we're supposed to be doing. But at the same time, if we're going to be honest about the fact that our conclusions to these questions, and this part is true of, of all fields, I think the conclusions to the questions we ask have great importance in our lives. It might take a few steps before we get to the importance, depending on how technical what you're doing is. But I think having the ability to just like bring your whole self to it with some caveats, right? Like, you know, there's there still are things that are might be inappropriate to include, but having the ability to do that is has been really important for me and has been new for me to learn how to do that well, coming from a seminary context where it was like, of course, we're doing that. Everything we're doing is oriented towards the church and our spiritual formation to a context where some of my classes are like that, but I've done most of, you know, about half my coursework I've done outside of the divinity school. So figuring out what that looks like has sometimes been a challenge, but it's been good for me to go. Yeah. I want all of us to bring our full selves to the work that we're doing. Yeah. I mean, you really do that in this book. So it's a great transition to talk about your new book, The Ballot and the Bible, How Scripture Has Been Used and Abused in American Politics and Where We Go From Here. And I loved reading this book and I had so many reactions as I read it. On one hand, I really loved learning about the way American politics and Christian faith intersect in history. That was super fascinating. I felt like Mm -hmm. I learned a ton. And then on the other hand, I felt like real profound grief and anger over the examples of people who were using scripture to advance certain political positions that seemed like I did not agree with that. And, And then at the same time, I found myself asking if there are ways that I needed to examine Mm -hmm. myself and my own political ideas and other ways that I've used the Bible unfairly to defend my actions. So it was a really interesting read Mm. and really challenging. And I think does exactly what you're saying, where you're you're putting forth this really um, scholarly um, exploration of history, but also bringing it into our hearts and our lives. So I'm really interested to hear your journey of this book. Can we mm-hmm. talk about why you why you wrote it and how you chose this amazing timing, right? You know, in the year before <laughs> a presidential election. Yeah. Well, um, thank you for that. I'm so glad to hear that. That's mm-hmm. how that's how you received it. Um, 
Yeah, I had really no, in fact, I don't know if I said this on the podcast last time I was on, but I'm sure I was thinking it. It's like, I had no plans to write another book while wow. I was like in my program. Absolutely none. Um, I, I feel like there's a weird thing where like, after you have a book come out, everyone immediately asks, like, are you going to write another one? And I was like, no, I have to write a dissertation. Like there's no, like, that's the next book dissertation. Mm-hmm. We're not doing something before that. And Caitlin Beatty, who was my initially my acquisitions editor for the first book, and then she moved to to Brazos from IVP. Um, she just like again, cold email. Are you interested in writing another book? Have you thought about it? And I was like, absolutely not. There's no way that's happening. And then weird long story that I will shorten, I like went to get a cavity filled <laughs> and <laughs> they put headphones on you to like, you know, let you, you know, zone out. And I really like outlined the book in my head while they were doing it, which I don't know. I make no claim that it was like a divine revelation or anything, but I, for some reason, I just became really obsessed with this idea of working on this book. And it really came from, I had, even though I said, absolutely not, we're not writing another book in the back of my mind, I was starting to think like, what would it be if I was going to do that? Mm -hmm. And what I had started to think was the first book I wrote is, is about spiritual formation in our political lives. And there's a chapter in it on scripture. And that was becoming so many of the questions I was asked when I was like speaking at college campuses or churches, people would say like, this is what my conflict with my family or in my church is about. It's often about scripture, which I think I first wanted to say like, that's great. Like, I love that a bunch of Christians are really trying to have scripture inform their whole lives. That's amazing. But I also understand why it's so frustrating because we're not really talking to each other. We're just kind of like pitting cherry picked Bible verses and hoping we get like one more than the person that we're opposing. And and so it was this source of real frustration. And what I had originally started to think was, okay, could I write a book about how we read the Bible for political purposes? Which at the same time, I'm also thinking I was like about to start my doctorate and going like, that's what I'm going to study <laughs> for the mm-hmm. whole time. I knew already. Um so I, I was not thinking I'd write a book. I had this idea. And then at some point when I'm at the dentist, I thought, okay, but if I write a book that just says, here's how we interpret scripture for political purposes, one, I don't think that really addresses the problem. Here's a list of 15 hermeneutical rules that like don't address the emotion and the kind of sense of community and loyalty that are at play and all of our habits that are just ingrained in us and how we read. It doesn't address that. And if I jump in with hey, maybe don't use Romans 13 against Black Lives Matter protests. Temperatures are high. Like people are ready to fight. Like it's not really about proper interpretation. It's all this other stuff. So I thought, what could I use to kind of give us a little bit of distance from the political demands of our moment, but still give us tangible examples? Because I think when it comes to these questions of scriptural interpretation in moral and political questions, it's always going to be this time, this place, what is the demand here and now? It's not like, one universal rule kind of fixes it. So I thought, let's do American history. Let's find some examples that both help us figure out what are the habits we are inheriting. Um, I might inherit some hermeneutical habits from my particular Christian tradition, but when it comes to our political lives, it's it it's not so neatly divided between like, you know, I'm a Presbyterian and I'm a Roman Catholic and this is how we read scripture. No, it's like as an American, I have particular habits. Yeah. And so could I narrate some of that? But then also give examples that maybe pushed against some of our kind of tendencies and how we use it now, but a little indirectly. You know, maybe I can't jump in and say, hey, don't use Romans 13 against Black Lives Matter protests. But I can say, here's how loyalist priests use Romans 13 during the Revolutionary War. If you don't like that, if you feel uncomfortable with that, why? What what are they doing that's different from what we're doing? Or is it actually the same? And if it is the same, what does that mean for us? And how do we 
trying to both push us to to think about some actual hermeneutical rules. Like, actually, let's figure out what Romans 13 is really saying. Actually, we shouldn't apply promises to Israel directly to America. There are some just rules. But also, could these stories and kind of inhabiting these stories help us examine the deeper spiritual formation questions that are at play? Why do I go to this verse? What in this verse, what in this interpretation sounds like good news to me? What is appealing about this? How does this make my community, my sense of identity feel strengthened? And and all of those kinds of questions. Um, I my my dream for this book is that people read this in their churches and their communities and can help each other see those things. I don't think one book can really help you get at some of that stuff. But I hoped that by telling some of these stories in American history, we could kind of do that. And then by the time I was getting to all these ideas, I was like, well, hate to break it to my advisor, but I think I'm writing this book now. So. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's really worthwhile effort that you put into this and for it to be out at this time, um, at this time in our nation's history. I would love to dive into just a couple of the examples that you yeah. bring up, because I think it's really helpful um, to hear about. So. You mentioned the debates around um, the American Revolution between Mm -hmm. the Loyalists and the Patriots. And I would love for you just to talk a little bit about how they use scripture to defend their positions and what we can learn that, you know, about how as we reflect on the way they thought about things. Yeah, that that example in the revolutionary era is such a good picture of some of the fights that we would have throughout our history, which is that there's one side that really wants to kind of rely on direct commandment. So the loyalist could go to Romans 13 and say, yeah. obey the authorities. There you yeah. go. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. They could go to first Peter where it literally the King James translation says, obey God, honor the King. That's a great, you know, three words. It says right. it. There we go. Whereas the Patriots often relied on narratives um, and in ways that were sometimes contradictory, right? This is a period in which there are enslaved people in America, but they are going to to stories of exodus to talk about their own kind of liberation. And some of them saw some of the contradictoriness. A lot of them did not, but they did often rely on, on kind of narrative accounts to give a sense of like divine mandate and per- like purpose and meaning to what they were doing. So there was, I mean, there's so many stories in the Old Testament that they loved when it came to unjust kings. Um, they really liked Esther, especially because it didn't have to focus the criticism directly on the king. In mm-hmm. the story of Esther, it's like the king's underling that's really doing the evil thing. And the king is kind of a prop. And so they could they could do that to still have some sense of honor for the king, but then still be saying, no, there's real injustice happening here. One of my favorite examples that the Patriots used was uh, quoting the curse of Miraz, which is from Deborah's song. And it's like a curse of a, of a town that apparently did not come to Israel's aid in a battle. And so it would be used against people who might not be loyalists, but weren't sufficiently enthusiastic about the war. And so I think what we see in this is both this kind of difference of direct command. Here's this like single line that just, we have to follow versus narrative, but also a lot of the examples I found in this period reminded me that we, we've we used scripture basically the same amount throughout American history, both sides, all sorts of different positions. We still love using it. The main difference is that our references used to be a lot more obscure because people did read the Bible a lot more and a lot widely. And so you could get away with saying, oh, the curse of Mirage against you. And someone going, right. oh, yeah, I've heard that before. I know what that means. Whereas today we're, we're really kind of working with like John 316 and Romans 13 and, and kind of some more simplistic <laughs> references than than maybe we had in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Let's skip ahead then for a couple hundred years and let's let's talk yeah. about the civil rights movement because you write about this um in a very compelling way. You talk about Southern segregationists and how they use scripture, which is 
really awful. It was one of those times when I wanted to throw the book against the wall. Yeah. But then at the end of the chapter, you point out our need to reflect on who we identify with in scripture yeah. and, you know, wondering if our vision is accurate. And it was really a probing question. So I'd love for you to say a little bit more about this, how yeah. we can take steps to do that well. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's not surprising, but it is striking when you read this history to realize how how easy it was, especially for for Black Christians in America, to see themselves in the story of the Exodus, for example, or other stories, especially in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament of, of persecuted Christians and see God liberates God's people and, and we expect God to do that again. And so I see myself in this story, both in terms of enduring the suffering that God's people endured and also in this hope for liberation. And it's then not surprising that, you know, many white people, especially very pro-segregationist people, did not see themselves as Pharaoh, you know, in the story yeah. of the Exodus. They didn't see themselves as, um, you know, authorities oppressing the people that, you know, many people were seeing themselves in those stories in. And as you said, I think the difficult thing is to not just look back at that history and say, oh my gosh, like they were so wrong. How could they not have seen? But then to ask if people who very often knew scripture so well missed it, like missed the demand of this moment, what does that mean for us? Yeah. I, in my first book, I referenced um, a former president of the seminary that I went to during the era in which um, private schools in Texas were being pressured to desegregate, but before it was legally required, was asked if the seminary would desegregate. And this person who knew scripture probably more than I ever will, like knew it so widely, memorized so much of it, said, the Bible has nothing to say about that. So this person who knew scripture so well, knew all the right hermeneutical rules, knew the historical background, knew the, knew the ancient languages, missed the demand of this moment um, that others saw so clearly in scripture. So for us, I think it's both an appropriate moment to say, actually, history helps us see that because you're, you're horrified by what people missed. And it it really prompts you to ask some hard questions of yourself. But then it it I think it really provokes us to ask, who am I reading with? Both in a physical, literal sense of like, who's in my community? Do I have different voices that are causing me to see things that I would miss? Or help me when like, you know, that moment after you read the text in like a small group or something and someone goes, okay, so basically this happened. Do you have someone that could go, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I don't think you got that totally right. Or when someone says, my kind of application of this is that we should do that. Who's there to, to ask some hard questions about that? But also, we live in a time and place in which we have greater access than we have ever had to a diversity of resources, not just of different backgrounds, you know, racial identities, et cetera, in our own context and time, but throughout time. I mean, the ability that we have to read Christians in completely different political contexts than mm -hmm. our own and ask, okay, is what they're saying about this passage strange because it is strange or are we strange? <laughs> like, yeah. have we missed something? Is there actually a malformation in us? is really, really important. And I wish there was like a hermeneutical rule that would get us out of just the hard work of putting ourselves in community and and cultivating humility in ourselves. I mean, ultimately what this all comes down to is, do I go to scripture asking different questions? Do I come with a posture of assuming I will be both comforted and convicted that I might be critiqued, that like there really might be a word, as Bonhoeffer says, there might be a word against us here do I have myself in the posture to hear that or not is a question that 
you need to be asking the people in your community. <laughs> like you need to be honest and, and open to other people saying, no, actually, I think you come looking for a weapon to pick up and wield against someone else. I don't think you come seeing that this will actually critique you. Um, that's really hard work. And if anything, yeah. the history also teaches us that sometimes our very communities can reinforce our bad reading habits right. by being pretty monolithic. And so that's a whole other level of really difficult work. Um, but I think it's really important. And I do think the history also gives us some hope to know not only have there been faithful Christians in a variety of circumstances who, who heard correctly the word of the Lord, but there have been people who were in those kinds of communities that were malforming them that were patient and waited on the Lord and, and listened to the guidance of the Holy Spirit and were able to withstand the way that their, their community was malforming them. And that should not give us, you know, total confidence that that will be us. That should actually really make us, um, more curious and more humble and more attentive to those who are reading very differently than us. Yeah. It is a really challenging word and a really challenging book in all the best ways. I mean, it's so good that you, that you wrote this. Well, I want to, um, I want to look into just one more example, if we can. Um, You write several times. I mean, you really write throughout the history, you know, through the whole book about this phrase, give unto Caesar, what is Caesar's mm-hmm. and to God, what is God's? And it really, I mean, it impacts politics today and from the beginning. So can you unpack this idea a little bit for us? Yeah. Christians have had a variety of approaches to this passage and it is kind of a characteristic Jesus thing right. to like be asked what you, the setup of the story sounds like, oh, we're going to hear a straightforward teaching on taxation and government. And then Jesus says kind of a cryptic, confusing thing that kind of dumbfounds the people around him. And then we do the characteristic thing where we hear that story in scripture and go, oh, but it's obvious to us. Like it confused the people then, but like, it's very clear and obvious to us. Um, Christians have very consistently seen in Jesus's response to this question of should you pay taxes to Caesar? And, and he says, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, have seen a picture of, of dual authority that in some sense, and we debate in what sense this is true, we are under the authority both of, of earthly authorities. And this is you know resonant with Romans 13 or a place like Jeremiah 29 that has a similar picture of like there are, there are multiple authorities at play here. Your ultimate authority is to God. Give to God what is God's means give to God everything. (laughs) Like there is nothing that is not God's. But also Jesus doesn't say don't pay taxes. And he doesn't say there's nothing owed to Caesar. He does say give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And people have, it's interesting. I mean, it obviously depends on like the theological position you're in and the political conditions you're living under. People have emphasized different parts of that. Um, Some people have said, given to Caesar, what is Caesar's? Well, if if everything is God's, then basically he's saying you don't need to give anything to Caesar because the the all goes to God. Other people have said, oh, given to Caesar, what is Caesar's? means Caesar's authority is entirely legitimate and doesn't need to be critiqued. And actually you owe quite a bit to Caesar. Um, And the example that I give towards the end of the book is um, Jerry Falwell Jr., who was one of the earliest evangelical supporters of Donald Trump in the 2016 election, a very early and very enthusiastic supporter, would rely on this quotation to basically communicate, I think, a really um, poor political theology to mean basically there are different rules for the political world and your personal world. Um, given to Caesar what is Caesar's means adopt the rules of the world when it comes to politics. And he said as much pretty explicitly in his in his various interviews and tweets, <laughs> you know, I don't want someone who turns the other cheek. I want someone that hits back. Like that kind of mentality that says, sure, the Sermon on the Mount is good for your personal life, for your life in the pew. But in the you know ballot box, you're not thinking about those things. You're thinking about who will fight for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is 
you know, he would, some people would kind of compare it to other political theologies throughout Christian history. I don't think that's really fair. I do think this is a real distortion. There's not really a faithful way to say, no, your life is completely separate. There are completely separate roles between these two realms. And even people who would look at what he did and say, oh, absolutely not. No, I do think Christian morals should inform my political work. I think it should inform how I think about different candidates. We often fall into this kind of mentality of, there are different rules for my personal life and my political life. Mm-hmm. And especially, I think this is true regardless of where you fall in the political spectrum, when we have this mentality that a lot of American Christians have of we've got to change the whole world. Um, let's not mess around with the local stuff. It is the big national stuff that is where it's at. Like that's where real faithfulness is at. This is the world changers. You know how many Christian colleges talk about changing the world it's really easy to start to think, well, yeah, you've got to rely on the world's rules. If you're going to enact change on that level, you might have to run over some people on the way to get there. You might have to compromise some moral things that you never thought you would compromise. Um, you might have to cut some corners and just not do things as as with an, as much integrity because if the scale is the world or the nation, then it's justified because we're doing this big change. We might have to just pay some cost along the way. And I think a better way of thinking about give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's is Caesar's authority is legitimate. This is also what Romans 13 says. Um, we we as Christians are not completely antagonistic to any form of communal social life outside the church. We might have criticisms of it. We might have differences of opinion about what form it should take, but we are for our larger communities and we care about the structuring and flourishing of them. And yet when that authority that we are living under in an earthly sense conflicts with what God has called us to do, we serve a higher authority. And that might cost us greatly, actually, but not the kind of cost that, you know, that is the compromise cost. This is the cost that, you know, civil rights activists would say, um, you know, if they kill us, they kill us. But but God's judgment is for us. Like, ultimately, we will be vindicated. That's the kind of give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. That's the that's the if you imprison me, I'll take it. If there are political consequences to my faithfulness, I will receive them because I know that ultimately I am giving everything to God and God's justice is perfect and is coming. That kind of firm belief in the return of Christ is actually, and, and that comes pretty quickly after given to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's, is this image of of judgment of earthly authorities. Mm-hmm. The temple will be destroyed. A reminder that like all of those earthly authorities, even if we are to owe some respect and honor to them, to obey them in a in a kind of temporal way, they are ultimately subject to the judgment of God, all of them. And so we have to find some way to kind of balance that desire to honor those authorities with the reality that we don't ultimately serve them. We're ultimately serving God. Hmm. Well, looking at um, your subtitle, I want to, I want to take a look at, because you, you, mm-hmm. your subtitle includes an important phrase how scripture has been used and abused in American politics and where we go from here that, and where we go from here part, I found Mm -hmm. very hopeful. So can you suggest some next steps for listeners who want to improve their ability to think clearly about how their faith impacts their political action? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that was really important for me to say in this book was I, I hear the people who are looking at maybe the last 50 years of especially kind of white evangelical political engagement and feeling hopeless. Mm -hmm. Like not just has there been a lot of betrayal, a lot of justifying injustice, but it just sort of feels like, is it possible to do this well? Because the models that I've been given are terrible. 
And what I wanted to do in highlighting some of the more positive uses of scripture in American political history was to say, it is possible. There have been really faithful Christians whose work towards justice was shaped by the story of scripture. And I want that to be a comfort to us to know that there is a world outside of maybe the little tradition that you come from or the one church that really failed you. There's something bigger. Mm -hmm. And it's often been Christians in the margins, um, the histories that you didn't learn in Sunday school, the things that, you know, maybe you were told were unfaithful that actually were really deeply faithful. Um, so I want that to be part of the where we go from here is like, okay, no, here are some positive examples. Let's learn from these. Yeah. And part of what we learn from them is we've got to read more widely. We've got to read throughout the whole canon. Um, I was at an event recently with a bunch of Christians and I asked, um, we, we decided to do this like uh, workshop and we asked them all to say, what are some biblical examples of guidelines for public speech and work? So just anything in scripture that you think of. And I sort of cynically beforehand thought it's all going to be from the New Testament. It's all going to be from the New Testament. It's all going to be direct commands about, you know, live a quiet and faithful life or, you know, don't speak in this kind of way, these sorts of verses. And then I kind of chastised myself, like, don't think so poorly of these people. And I was 100% right. I mean, it was oh, it was almost entirely New Testament and a couple of Proverbs. And the handful of people who didn't do that were all people of color, which I think is also instructive for us. But I, but I say that just to say too often our approach to our political lives have been shaped not only by only a few genres um, of scripture and a few places in scripture. Uh, Romans 13 is partially such a favorite because it's a direct teaching. It's in an epistle. And so it feels really straightforward. Whereas we miss the, the narrative, the poetry, all these other things that are instructive for our political lives, but it's it requires some more work, both exegetical work, but also spiritual formation work to say, like, I've been meditating on this story and trying to discern the moral logic of it and ask what that means for me now. So reading more widely across the canon in different genres. And then also, I think really importantly, reading before we get to the moment of here's the political question in front of us. Because I think too often our habit has been, here's the political question. Should I support this policy or not? Should I support this candidate or not? And then we have a kind of cherry pick habitual response, which is to say, okay, the question is immigration. I'm going to go to my concordance and find all the verses that are about whatever word I decide, which is also itself kind of a prejudiced choice. What word do I think applies to this situation or not? Do I look up foreigner? That would lead me to some very different verses than if I look up nation or justice. You know, there might be really a lot of choice in, in the kind of words I look up. But we have that habit of, okay, political problem presents itself. Go to scripture and find verses that kind of fit this scenario. And in some ways, I love that. Like, great, faithful Christian response. Go to scripture. The problem is we're so motivated already at that point. You already have an opinion about mm -hmm. this political question. Let's not pretend that we don't. Maybe you haven't fully settled, but you have biases. You're coming from a particular place. You are probably in an election season already. So you've been bombarded with lots of messages and ideas that have played on your emotion and your community and your identity. All that's at play. Whereas what if a year before the election, we read through Isaiah for the whole year? And we really tried to say, okay, we've we've read through this book that maybe we've ignored for a while. Let's remember other places in scripture, other genres across the canon. Let's think together about what a political theology looks like. What is the meaning of human community and government? What do these authorities, multiple authorities that we live under, interact with each other? How, how do we know when to say with Romans 13, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities? And when to say in Acts 5, we worship God rather than human beings? Like all of those questions are theology questions that if our churches were doing more public theology and discipleship, we would be the kind of people that are better prepared for when the particular political situation presents itself. 
my fear is that too often we're kind of working backwards and we're working from a place that we're not in the best like context ourselves. Uh, we're not in emotionally the best way to to address these kinds of questions. And it's already kind of too late. We haven't been well-formed to have a, have a robust public theology or political theology. Um, that's a lot harder work. I'm sure there are pastors that are like, don't tell me that we have to like do all this stuff for years before an election. But I feel like that's been my life the last two election seasons is people saying, okay, we're about to vote. Tell us what to do. And I'm like, I think we're, we're years late. Like this is, we need to start now for the next election season and say, who, how are we forming people that are the kind of people that can approach this well, they can approach scripture well and can approach a ballot box well. Yeah. Well, we're we're always being formed. I mean, if we're not being formed by scripture, yeah. we're being formed by the news cycle and, yep. it, and you know, social media and everything. So it's, I mean, we have to, it's it's such a good word to be be aware of what is forming us. Yeah. And it's not, I don't want to lean into like, um, because I'm worried that what I'm about to say is going to sound like this. Mm. It's not the um, you know, let the wind flip your Bible pages and put a finger down. And that's the but I do think. Just having a regular practice of reading scripture and reading in places you wouldn't normally read does open yourself up more to the Holy Spirit guiding you to, okay, actually, that's this narrative that actually addresses this question that's in front of you. It's not the verse you would have looked up in the concordance. It's not totally, you know, you make no decisions and you don't try and look for certain places, but it is a little openness to say, I might hear somewhat of a, of a response to the problem that we're facing in a totally unexpected place. I didn't think this story would speak to it, but now that I've read it five times and I've really asked God to reveal something to me in it, it, it has suddenly offered a surprising word. I didn't think that this is how scripture would guide me, but maybe this is, this is how it is. Yeah. You know, in the last chapter, you talk about prophets communicating to the church. You specifically talk about Huldah the prophet. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, as I was reading that, I was like, this is like Caitlin. I mean, do you see your own role mm. in writing this book as similar to hers in some ways? Mm. Oh, I haven't thought about that. Um, I, you know what? I actually like that more. But part of my um, desire to talk about Holda was that I think we so often are excited by the idea of being a prophet, mm. um, which I think means that we're really not reading Jeremiah very well because his life was horrible <laughs> and you should not right. want that. Like I've seen so many people be like the fire in my bones that Jeremiah talks about. I want that. I'm like, no, that sounds painful. That right. sounds like fibromyalgia. <laughs> like that does not sound good. I don't think you want that. Um, he didn't want to be born. Like it's not good. But I also think it's so rare for any of us to to actually be receiving like direct word from God like these prophets were we're much more likely to be in Holda's position where mm -hmm. what happened with her was the King Josiah, they find the the book of the law. They go, who will help us understand this? And they come to Holda the prophet. And instead of direct word from God, that's a new word spoken. She reads the law and says, we're in trouble and <laughs> judgment is coming. So she's both trying to faithfully interpret scripture as it's already been received by her and then interpret the conditions that she's under the world that she's around. And I, I wish that that was more of what we meant when we talked about prophets, not that all these other meanings can't be true as well, right. but that I think it could help us have a healthier sense of faithful prophetic speech, that it's not just, it might be a harsh word, it might be a real condemning word, but it's not always the flipping tables. It's not always the kind of shaking your fist at Pharaoh. Sometimes it's within the people of God asking are we interpreting God's word faithfully and are we interpreting God's world faithfully? Yeah. And that's like quieter, slower, it's less dramatic. 
Um, and if I had any aspirations to to um, prophethood, I would rather we had those kinds of aspirations than I really want to be like the fire in my bones guy, both because yeah. I don't think we want that. And also because I think there's all sorts of other dangerous motivations that can creep in with that. And you see that sometimes in our own history of I started out with like, I think a true word from God that needs to speak to I need to speak this to power. And it ends up being really corrupted by my own desire to yeah. be in front of people to be, you know, involved politically. There's all these other corrupting influences and those are at play all the time in everything. But I think they're less seductive when we're just saying, look, I'm just trying to discern here and now what is the word of the Lord for us. And it might be against the things that I think are our best interests. Yeah. Well, let's move. um, Let's shift our conversation a little bit to talk specifically about women in academic and Mm. professional contexts and how they can use this book because that is mostly um, our audience. So is mm-hmm. there anything that you'd like to highlight, particularly for women in academia as they think about their own political theology or, you know, as they, you know, experiment with using ideas from this book in their own teaching, things like that? Yeah. I mean, one thing I'll say is my truly the, my favorite thing that I learned researching this was a woman in American Christian history that I was unaware of before, um, Mariah W. Stewart. So if anyone is is either teaching in that area of history or is thinking about is teaching biblical interpretation. Um, We have so many conversations that we'll end up having about biblical interpretation, especially in the civil war era. And there's a handful of key wonderful figures that we might go to, to help us think, especially about black American interpretation. But Mariah Stewart is incredible and not someone that has been talked about enough. Um, She was an abolitionist, a women's rights activist, and also something that might be encouraging to women in terms of vocation had a really interesting life. I mean, she uh, was indentured servant to a pastor. Her parents died when she was really young. And then she, but when she grew up, she married a much older man, um, kind of got herself into a place of social stability in Boston's kind of early flourishing black community in that period. And her husband died very quickly after she was married. And then she had this intense period of writing where she was writing speeches and, and some, some other things that were published. And then she basically didn't write anything for most of the rest of her life. She served in the Freedmen's Hospital. She was involved in, in public education for black children. And so has always been kind of like a picture for me over the last you know year or two of both being sensitive to God's calling. Um, I think probably in that period of intense writing when she's a, a, around people who are excited about her ideas and kind of has a little bit of, of social standing via her husband, it might've felt like it's this forever. Like we are on the uprise. I have pulled myself out of this situation and now I'm going to have this successful career and then doesn't, but serves really faithfully and kind of quietly for many years. And then right at the end of her life, unexpectedly finally receives the pension from her husband's military service that had been denied her and uses that money to publish a collection of all of her works. And now we get to to really learn from them. So both an encouragement to like, if you are teaching in anything that involves kind of civil war, biblical hermeneutics or civil war history, look up Mariah Stewart, think well about her, but also I think an encouragement of, you know, our vocations, you have no idea the kind of impact that you might have in the future. Um, And you have no idea how small of like intense productive time might end up having a great impact. And it might actually be a better impact because of those years of quiet, faithful service that she had as well. Um, So maybe the one thing is just go read Mariah Stewart. She's really incredible and, and a real interdisciplinary thinker. She's using a lot of scripture, but she also some political theorists in the last few years have become very interested in some of her work too. So that's great. 
So, you know, as we wrap up, I'm wondering how readers can follow you and your work. What's on the horizon? Obviously, you have a dissertation to write. <laughs> Are there other things we can watch for? Yeah, yeah. Um, you can find me on social media or on my website, which is caitlinchess.com. And I actually have resources, prayers, and spiritual disciplines to practice for an election year, which I wrote for 2020, but I think are just as relevant for 2024. Um, And yeah, I'm going to, you know, keep promoting this book for the rest of the year. But then in 2024, I'm going to spend a lot of time. I'm really thankful with both churches and Christian colleges kind of working through preparation for the 2024 election. Um, And I, I love doing that work, especially doing the work in churches where I like doing a like Tuesday night, let's talk about politics thing, but sometimes that can be heated and people come ready to fight. I love doing a, I'm preaching on a Sunday morning and, and this is my area of expertise. So what I preach on will involve helping us think better about building that, that political theology I was talking about, but it's in a, it's in a worship setting and that makes a difference. And the kind of community that we have together is different. And then also spending time in Christian colleges with college students, which I obviously I want to do in the future and I love doing now. Um, and they, that is something that just like gives me a lot of hope, um, because they are asking some incredible questions and, and want to be faithful in this. Um, and a lot of them do not want to do what I said earlier of just kind of let's, let's pull the Bible out of political life because it's been so abused. We just need to get rid of it. A lot of them are, are really earnestly searching the scriptures for, for what God would have us do. And that, for all of the ways we might fail at doing it, the fact that there are people that are really wanting to do that well is just always an encouragement to me. I think Caitlin's book could be a terrific one to share with our churches or read with a small group over the next year. There is so much in her writing that is challenging for American Christians. And wouldn't it be great if we could all walk into the next presidential election with humble, clear thinking that is based on scripture? I love the way Caitlin's book is contributing meaningfully to the conversation, and I hope you pick up a copy anywhere books are sold. And if you listen to the end of the credits, you'll get to hear a bonus from our podcast where Caitlin shares a practice that has been strengthening her sense of community. The Women Scholars and Professionals podcast is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at our website. To ensure others will find and enjoy our podcasts as well, please consider rating and reviewing our podcast and sharing it with others. And as we close, listen in on this excerpt from my conversation with Caitlin. It's funny, I ever since I moved here um, to Durham, I have had one really close single friend who we both live alone and kind of live similar lives. Um, She is not quite an academic, but is kind of an academic. She's done a lot of theological education and works a lot in, in writing and thinking about these things and teaching. And to have someone so similar in life to me where we can spend a lot of our time in each other's homes. And like, I realized recently part of what has made this, this relationship so close 
is that most of the time when I see people and I appreciate having meals with people, we almost always do them out. Like we go to a mm-hmm. restaurant or we go to a bar and the intentionality of the two of us spending so much time in each other's homes, I just think has been really important. And I think a lot of single people don't get in the habit of doing that because mm-hmm. it's more, it seems like a family thing. Like invite someone over for dinner and you're all around a, a table. I have felt that even myself with friends, even in my program who are married or have children feeling like, well, can I invite them to my home? Like, it feels like there's some kind of disconnect there. And it's been really good for me to be in a regular habit of, of sharing space and food and time in my home with another person to then be in the habit of inviting other people into that. Mm -hmm. And even if people think that's sort of unexpected, I don't know why we have this ingrained sense that that's like a family thing or a couple thing to do, but it really makes so much of a difference in terms of like the vulnerability that you're sharing to have someone in your home to like maybe fail at cooking the thing that you're cooking right, right. Um, and to have the freedom to just like spend a lot of time together. That has made such a huge difference to the point where I said this earlier, but like I'm celebrating this book coming out tomorrow night. And it's like that whole community of people is so dear to me. And I've been here only a few years. And the fact that it has, has, happened that way, I think is a lot due to this insistence on like being in people's homes and, and not taking the admittedly easier route of meeting outside, which can be necessary, but going, my house might be a mess, but you're going to come over and it's going to be okay. And, and we're going to spend time together. And that, um, it just changes the feel of the home that you're in too, even when people are not in it. 